Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to the February Investment Edition of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, where I talk to Heritage Financial's Chief Investment Officer, Bob Weiss, about what's going on in the markets and the investment universe right now that we think you need to know. Bob, welcome back to Wealthy Behavior. How have you been? Thank you, Sammy. Been well. So, yeah, it's hard to believe we're already into February. Uh, What is on your mind in terms of educating our listeners this month? Well, as we're recording, there's a Fed meeting today, so it's back to uh, Fed Watch, and uh, 2024 is going to be an interesting year on that front. We, we've been through really a cycle of fighting inflation, increasing rates, and um, 2024 is expected to be the year where they cut rates and, and, and cut rates a number of times, and that that's kind of the the big question: when do they start cutting, and how much by year end? So. Um, at this meeting that, that's happening today, um, expectations are for nothing, but um, we'll probably get some guidance, um, whether it's through the, the meeting notes or the press conference. So it'll be interesting to see um, you know, what they do as we progress through the year. So we've talked about this before, Bob, but why would they cut rates if the economy is doing well? What would be the urgency there to maybe add juice and perhaps re-stimulate the economy or, or, you know, trigger maybe more animal spirits and inflation? Yeah, it, it's, it's a good question. And that's, that's what they're, they're wrestling with. So I think there's, there's two things to think about in answering that. One is there's uh, different levels of, of the Fed funds rate where it can still be restrictive. So okay. right now we're in the five and a quarter to five and a half range. So that is, you could call it restrictive. It's above average. So foot's on the break. If they cut it, say 25 basis points to five to five and a quarter, that's still restrictive. Okay. So it's just like how hard you want to be pushing on the break. So when inflation's 9%, you should be pushing the break a little harder than when it's three to three and a half. So you can still be restrictive. It's not like drop it down to zero again, like it was a few years ago. So that's on one hand, just, you know, lighten it a little bit, but still in the restrictive territory. And then the second point on that front that we've talked about is uh, the, the lagging effects of um, tight monetary policy, how you know you, you increase rates and by the time the data is released, um, th- th- there's a delay. So it's they don't want to get caught with whoops, there's a recession and now we we um, you know start cutting rates. So basically you're saying you know flip the framing. It isn't why would you cut rates? If the economy's fine, it's why would you keep them so restrictive if inflation's improving? There's some lag in the data, and keeping them this restrictive could cause problems down the road. So start to ease off a little bit. Yeah. And, and so the Fed has a dual mandate um, employment and inflation. And at its, at its worst, um, you could say inflation was 9%, and unemployment was at uh, about a 40 year low. And it, it's ticked up a little bit. The, the labor market um, unemployment's ticked up a little bit from where it was. And the, the like the JOLTS report that we talk about, um, job openings per unemployed um, individual was about two to two point one at its peak, where there are two point one jobs. That's a, a 
um, a very strong, too strong labor market, they would say. There's not balance in the labor market at that level. That, that 2.1 ratio is down to about 1.4. Okay. So on the labor side, they've seen some softening. It's, it's almost back to the average level there. And then inflation's come down. So should they have the same policy in today's environment that's a little more balanced, still a little hot on the inflation side, um, as they did when it was so out of whack at, at the when inflation was at nine percent. So I think that's that's part of it. And how do markets react, Bob, generally to rate cuts, or is there not a general expectation of how markets react? Well, you see it most in the bond market. That's where it, it, it's it's. Um, you know, it gets priced in and markets try to anticipate it. Okay. So if the Fed telegraphs it, it gets all priced in. And, and sometimes it's truly a non-event um, for at least intermediate and long-term bonds because it gets priced in well in advance. What we've seen in, in this month, um, January is a good example. So in January, the Bloomberg aggregate U.S. bond index, the total returns about negative 85 basis points. So bonds are down almost 1% in January. And, and you know why is that? Uh, the market's been adjusting. In December, the thinking was, okay, they're going to, uh, There's, I think there's a 50-50 or even higher chance of cutting by March of 2024. And uh, some data has come out in January that you know, have, have made market participants think, yeah, maybe, maybe not so much. So maybe March will be a pass as well. So the market's adjusted to that. So the market's kind of guessing what the Fed's going to do. So frequently you'll see the the market action before the news. And so you you wanted to touch on today what has been going on in the bond market. So that was essentially what you wanted to point out in reaction to some of the Fed expectation and, and rate moves that we've been anticipating. I mean, to be a little more concrete with it. So CPI for December came in at uh, 30 basis points uh, of inflation for the month, uh, year over year 3.4% which is still a little high, like 0.3 for a month, but that's, we had been coming in um, around like zero to 0.2 for the last couple of months. So uh, it was a little elevated. And, and that I think is one of the main drivers. PCE was 0.2, 2.6 year over year. So just having that type of data is what the, the market said, along with seeing strong um, GDP growth made the market um, say, you know what, maybe they won't be cutting as quickly as we thought. And that's how you've had a little bit of a sell-off in bonds. Um, on the on the equity side, U.S. equities have uh, been volatile, but recently have run up and been pretty strong there, led by large growth. And uh, so U.S. equities are up a, a couple percent um, in January. And overseas markets are a little more mixed with um, there being a sell-off in emerging markets, emerging markets down about 3%. Um, there's been uh, some volatility there, especially with China has been, um, you know, really tough over really the last uh, about three years, I think China peaked in around early 2021 and that market's down close to 50% since then. So if, if you want to be a contrarian and uh, you know go where, where the valuations are really cheap, that, that that's China right now. And so just sticking back to the Fed and the potential for cuts and you outlined the impact on the bond market, we didn't talk specifically about what stocks would do. I want to get that to that in a second. But there is, I think, one area that, uh, and we've talked about it before on the podcast, where there is a direct impact and it is actionable for investors. And that's it, with uh, short-term uh, bonds and money market yields, right? I mean, there should be a direct hit to those yields when the Fed cuts rates. And that is money that people 
if it is mid to long-term money should be redeploying, even though we've been telling them that for a while. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. The T-bills, money market yields, that that moves with Fed policy pretty much in lockstep. And um, when they start cutting, we, we don't know. But looking at like the, the CME FedWatch tool, meeting probabilities, there is a 0% chance priced in the markets that rates stay where they are by the end of the year. Okay. Uh, the, the average right now, the break even is is around four, four to four and a quarter uh, Fed funds rate. So like a, a one twenty five, uh, like five move, rate cuts move downwards. Yeah, yeah. And so whether they cut down to four, or cut to four and a quarter, three seventy five, like that's what the market's expecting by year end. Um, with it looking right now that um, around the May meeting is. Um, above a 50% chance that they're going to start cutting. So the, the money market yields you're getting now, uh, it's highly unlikely you'll they'll still be there at year end. You said 50% chance by May. I think the market had been anticipating March, right? Which is exactly. something you had chatted about. Okay. So from a financial planning standpoint, if you have variable rate loans, they may be cheaper to you by year end if yes. what you just laid out actually happens. Could be a percent... To a percent and a half less uh, than than what they are right now, which would be nice uh, benefit to consumers and the economy. That's so, right. um, touching on stocks real quick, Bob. There's, uh, I think, a view that stocks do very well when there's an easy monetary policy and the Fed is is cutting. Would you say, you know, the incremental moves that we've talked about would fit into that tailwind for the market, or uh, has the market already kind of priced in? where we could be going this year. And that's why we had such a strong end to 2023. No, I mean, there's the old Wall Street adage, don't fight the Fed. And I think there definitely is something to that. And if the Fed is getting more accommodative um, by cutting the Fed funds, right, that, that probably is a good thing for markets. And it's just kind of cross your fingers and hope that they're not doing it in the eye of a recession around the corner. But if they pull this off and cut rates this year and a recession doesn't come, that that's a good good outlook for stocks, good environment for stocks. And Bob, any thoughts on the Fed's balance sheet? Have they been unwinding that as well? They have been. So that's also, it, it's definitely less, gets less media attention. Um, back in 2020 and 2021, they were doing what's called quantitative easing, where they were buying bonds and buying mortgages. And that's their way of um, impacting intermediate and longer term rates on treasuries and mortgages. And they have been reversing that where they've been unwinding a little bit. So before we jump to another topic, Bob, just want to get maybe reflective on how we're doing as you know podcast hosts on this monthly conversation. We've spent a lot of time since this Wealthy Behavior podcast launched talking about the Fed, talking about rates. Have we overdone it? And is this really, uh, you know, kind of the most important topic for investors over the last year? And at some point, will would we anticipate talking less about the Fed? Answering backwards, yes. At some point, we should talk less about the Fed, but I don't think we've overdone it. Seeing, you know, it, we went a decade with inflation right around one to two percent, and then it, it spiked up to nine, and the Fed, you know, got very aggressive raising rates and. It's, uh, I think, definitely been the story of markets and um, seeing how they, you know, make it through this year will be critical. Uh, and then maybe we'll be back to more normal environments and we can talk about whatever else. Whatever else is there is to talk about. Yeah. All right. Good. I'm going to pat. 
pat myself on the back that we're asking and talking about the right things and that you've reassured me. So moving away from the Fed, I know you wanted to talk about something that I, I don't think we've addressed really on the podcast before, which is an investing slash financial planning concept, uh, asset location, where to position your investments uh, in order to uh, reduce your tax bill. Yeah. Basically. So we've recently been doing some portfolio rebalancing and we're also in the process of reviewing client 529 plans and our 529 plan models. And I thought tying that all together on the asset location topic would be interesting. So there's asset allocation that most people are familiar with, like how much to allocate to stocks, to bonds, to real estate, et cetera. Asset location is once you have a good sense of what you, you want your asset allocation to be and what positions asset location is, what account structures do you locate those assets? And there's three general account account types, taxable, tax deferred, and tax exempt. So taxable, think a individual brokerage account, joint account, trust account. Tax deferred means you're, you're deferring the, the tax liability. It is coming, but it's deferred. So that's uh, a 401k or a traditional IRA. And tax exempt is a, a Roth IRA and also uh, like a 529 plan or healthcare savings account can fit in the tax exempt bucket. So you have three different account um, types by the tax code. So when you're building a portfolio, what we do is we put the assets that we expect to be the highest returning in the tax exempt bucket. So if the Roth IRA, so if, if we think there's say a, a stock allocation that's gonna return 10 to 12% a year, you want to put that in the tax exempt bucket because that that money you'll never pay taxes on. You're not going to pay taxes year to year as it grows. You're not going to pay taxes when the money comes out. So you want to make the most of that. Um, and then for the tax deferred bucket where you're um, you're deferring it, that's the bucket where uh, fixed income typically fits the best. So if you have taxable bonds, you put the bonds in there. Um, and by deferring it, you're not paying taxes on the the interest payments, the coupons that you collect year to year but you're also not growing it too fast because if you grow that one at say 12% a year, then when you take it out, you're gonna have a big ordinary income tax bill. So if you have more conservative assets, typically you put them in, in the tax deferred and then on the, the taxable account, uh, that's where you equities typically are a good fit because they're taxed um, more favorably with long-term capital gain rates um, and it's more at, your decision when you sell, uh, when you incur the gains, you can defer taxes there. So um, I know that that was fast and a lot. I can segue to 529 plans, uh, which can play an interesting role. Um, but but that's it at a high level. Just uh, we, we see when we look at portfolios for new clients, most people look at each account on its own and don't integrate the accounts around tax structure. And I, I just think it's an opportunity um, to, to improve many portfolios. So how does that play out, Bob, in an environment where, for example, bond yields were anemic for a period of time? Would you interchange the the bonds to, with the stocks? Would you reassess your asset location, I guess, priorities? How often do you revisit that based on your return expectations for the different asset classes and what's going on in the environment? Yeah. So if you think about it, I, I so I led with first deciding what you want your asset allocation to be. So if you say I'm a 60-40 investor, 60% stock, 40% bond, that's the right level of risk for me. Yeah, that type of portfolio might have a 10 to 15% drawdown in a, a stressed environment. And that that's my level of risk, 
and then let's say you allocate and you you, you happen for this simple analogy to have 60% of your wealth is taxed, 40% yeah. is in your IRA. So your IRA is all bonds and your, your taxable accounts all stock. Then we play out an anemic bond environment. What happens? Your IRA didn't really grow and your taxable account grew a lot. Stocks did well. That's a good thing. That That's a good outcome for the 60-40. I'd rather my taxable money to grow faster because that that's free and clear from taxes you own it and and you get all the upside other than the capital gains whereas the the ira the government's kind of hanging over your back and they're going to take their their call it one third slice whenever you withdraw so that one didn't grow because bond yields were anemic and um but the, the taxable account did grow the most if you were to flip it and your your taxable money has the anemic return and meanwhile the tax deferred grows the most with the equities, then at some point the government's going to take their big bite out of it. So it it, it works very well with um, an anemic environment in bond yields like that. And then if you flip it to higher yields in fixed income, if you put that fixed income in your taxable account, that's going to be a, a pretty hefty ordinary income um, headwind for you. Yep. So really either way, bonds are a nice fit in the tax deferred account. And how do you deal with wild cards or I guess not a wild card, but a variable like a municipal bond where, you know, the yield could be attractive, but it's tax free, but it's sometimes not attractive on an after tax equivalent basis. How, how do how do munis fit into this? Yeah, that definitely brings some complexity. So we look at the, the break even at the individual level. So look at your tax bracket, Fed and state and what um, it, it would be if you own taxable bonds versus municipal bonds. And if munis work, typically we like to have an allocation to munis, but not have it be the entire fixed income allocation. And a, a reason for that is uh, the municipal bond market has less liquidity than especially the treasury market. So what, what you see in periods of panic, um, call it like a March of 2020, or, or certainly a, the, the financial crisis of 2008, people are buying treasury bonds. So if you own treasuries, it's appreciating, the price is going up and people are basically selling everything else, including munis. So municipal bond prices are going down. So the munis are, they're, they're bonds, but even investment grade, like a double A rated muni, um, those can, can suffer from a lack of liquidity in markets when you want your bonds to hold up. Okay. So you just have to be careful with like, like we might allocate 25 to 50% of someone's fixed income to munis, um, but typically not go too much higher than that um, because you, the, the treasuries and high quality corporates and agencies, things like that tend to have more liquidity and therefore hold up better. And when, when you think about it, why, why I say more liquidity, uh, it's because the market participants, it's just a deeper pool of investors. So who buys munis? U.S. individual taxable investors, so tax exempt institutions like you know pensions and endowments aren't buying munis. Foreign investors aren't buying munis, so you don't have as much depth. So when when retail investors get a little skittish, uh, the municipal market can be in trouble. Even through commingled vehicles, so you know I'm not buying the munis myself, but Vanguard's buying them for me. Yeah, they, they can get caught in that. Exactly. Yes. Great. And so then you said five two nines fit into this somehow. Yeah, I think 529s are an interesting vehicle. And when we talk about investment management and financial planning, um, a lot of financial planning topics get pretty narrow and deep and are kind of de their own topic and don't have too much to do with investing. 529s, I feel like um, 
you know, cover planning, investing, um, it covers a lot. And it's a, it's a tool that can be used for a, a wide audience as well. So with 529s, it's, it's a tax exempt structure. If you use the funds for education expenses and with that, there's two ways to invest in 529s, kind of two philosophical mindsets. One is you can do the kind of target date where you fund it and you want it to pay for someone's education and end at zero and it's kind of an isolated asset. Or another mentality is to view it as an integrated part of your portfolio. In doing so, because it's tax exempt, that can lead you to put your foot on the equity pedal a little heavier to really get the most out of the structure. So that's something to to think about. How do you want to use it? And and with that comes a range of outcomes. Like if it's overfunded, what do you do? And um, there's next generation planning. There's um, you know other siblings, relatives, things you can do. And then also with five twenty nine, so I've found it to be an effective tool when talking with clients who have adult children. And sometimes you find that um, you know grandparents like their grandkids better than their kids. And maybe they have enough wealth and they, they want to do something. And it, it's, it seems like a, it's a really sweet spot where you fund the grandchild's education. You make a contribution to the grandchild's education. You're helping your kids. You're also helping your grandkids. And it's also a good estate planning tool because it, it gets assets out of the estate, uh, the taxable estate, while you still have some control over it. So um, just uh, encourage people to, to talk to their wealth manager about 529 plans, really wherever you are in life. It can be a, a good tool for a, a multitude of purposes. Great. Awesome. Thank you for that uh, recap, asset location, 529s. And you, you know we, we could have started the podcast with this next topic, which we're going to use to wrap it up, but the market hit an all-time high in uh, January. The S&P hit an all-time high at 4839, passing the previous high water mark of 4818 set on uh, January 4th. So for those of you kind of keeping track at home, the last bull market peaked January 4th, 2022. The bear market that started that day ended October 12th, basically nine months later, 2022. And you know we hit a new all-time high in mid-January. Global markets have followed a similar pattern, but I think international stocks are a few percentage points still below their all-time high, but the same kind of general trajectory. So, Bob, when we're at all-time highs compared to, you know, in the depths of a bear market or a recovery like we were the last two years, how does your advice for investors change? It doesn't, in short. <laughs> uh, if, if you expect markets to go up over time, which we do, but we know the path isn't linear, but you should be at an all-time high a decent percentage of times so yep. if if you're kind of climbing up the mountain as you know as markets tend to do so stocks do have a positive expected return and, and we've tried to um, test markets based on total return price return and see if there's any future indication based on how you've done recently and on the upside, there really isn't. Like if you say markets are up 10% to start the year, if they're up 20% to start the year, what, what does that mean about the future? And it, it really all comes out to it's about average. The only mm -hmm. outlier in the data that we've found is if there's a big drawdown, you yep. get a slightly above average return. So that, that's where if stocks are down 20%, we're looking to buy. But otherwise our advice doesn't really change. It's more just discipline, have your right allocation. Don't get too greedy. Don't get over your skis. Right. But it's at an all-time high is not a signal to sell on its own. That's an important point. In the work that you've done 
to maybe make tactical portfolio shifts, looking at, you know, are there buying opportunities when markets are down and are there selling signals when markets have done really well? You found there's basically no selling signal when markets have done really well. But yeah, you got a big enough drawdown. It is an attractive either rebalancing point or opportunity to to add uh, to your allocation. So that kind of drives what what you just said in terms of you know there's no no change to the advice when markets are at all time highs. Just piggybacking off of that because um, you talked about you know markets should be near their all time highs quite often. Yeah, you know, I shared in a blog post last week. The market spends more than half of its time within ten percent of its all time high, right? So people who will ask, uh, I don't know, is it too late to get in? The market's doing really well. It's really near its all time high or it's at its all time high. Well, it spends more than half its time within spinning distance of its all-time high because it trends upwards, fortunately. Um, the other thing is bull markets last a long time. Since World War II, the average bull market has lasted over 1,700 days, right? So I don't need to do the math in my head. Don't make fun of me, but I think that's about five years. <laughs> um, but hopefully I got close to that. And um, you know, the returns are powerful. The average bull market return since World War II is over 150%. So most of the time, the market is in its upward trend, its upward trajectory. So just because you know we get banner headlines at new all-time high, you didn't necessarily miss something, and you definitely don't need to revisit your investment strategy or approach. Completely agree. Thank you, Bob. It would have been awkward if you disagreed. But um, what else? Anything else on your mind? What are you talking to your team about? No, we. I mean, we, we just got through doing a lot of rebalancing. I mean, in, in short, we over um, the last six months or so we've been adding to fixed income um, in light of higher yields so seeing that our fixed income allocation is pretty strong and high quality uh, in emerging markets moving- Bob can I interrupt you there when you say adding to fixed income that that was a, a kind of a minor addition right I mean it's not like we were taking clients from 65 to 60 in stock and 30 you know to whatever you, you know what I mean it's it is an incremental adjustment right? I think over the last 12 months, it was about a 5% move in total. And we've done it in multiple steps. So uh, it, it does depend on the objective type, but roughly 5% has been moved over the last 12 months in, in multiple steps for most people. And so, was it coming equally from across the globe in, in stocks or was there a segment of the the uh, investment universe that it came from primarily. For the average client, about half from real assets and inflation sensitive um, okay. that were there to, to protect from, you know, the inflationary, uh, you know, episodes we had in the last couple of years, and, and um, you know, the other two or three percent from stocks. From stocks, sorry. All right, so sorry I interrupted you. Please finish up. Yeah, so increasing fixed income, and then uh, within this is a little more precise. It may be within emerging markets, uh, we had a value overweight and that's paid off for the last three years. Emerging market value did a lot better than emerging market growth. So we've been underweight China, underweight China tech in particular, which has been a a real sore spot um, for markets, but we've outperformed within emerging markets because of that underweight. And we pretty much closed that underweight. Um, Okay, It's been so weak that we said, you know what, now let's, let's take that underweight off and we're more balanced between value and growth within emerging markets. The opposite has been um, true in the U.S. where, as I was saying, in in emerging markets, value has done better than growth. In the U.S., growth has done better than value. So in the U.S., we like value, but it's just specific to emerging markets that we we have about a 50-50 balance now. Right. Okay. Well, I appreciate that recap, Bob. And as always, I think it's an amazing opportunity for our listeners 
to uh, plug into your brain as you're thinking uh, day in and day out about the investment universe and trying to translate that into good results. So thank you for sharing your insights today. Thank you, Sammy. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior@heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakamis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker, are subject to change, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal. There has not been and will not be any compensation exchanged between Heritage Financial Services and podcast guests or recommended resources.